0: I'm really excited that this is one one It's not often that we get to gather on New Year's Day, but here we are. And so I'm thankful for this. We're gonna talk about spiritual foundations, or you could say disciplines of the faith. Now, faith, as you know, or maybe you don't, has two aspects at least. The one aspect is the faith, and that's what Jude 1-3 uh, speaks of. Um, I... Right of the faith, Jude says, meaning the contents of Christianity at its core, the faith. Now, faith uh, in in general just means trust in, reliance upon, and that kind of definition, that aspect of faith needs to have an object. Faith is neutral, but its object is crucial. Some have faith in the teachings of Mohammed. Some have te- uh, faith in the, in the holy books of um, the Indian faith. You know, tons of different Hindu gods, six million, uh, if I'm counting right. You know, I just counted yesterday. Uh, atheists have faith, right? They, they believe a story. There is no God. How do you know? I know. Prove it. I can't prove it. Okay, so you believe this story that uh, we came out of nothing, or rather maybe a singularity long billions of years ago, at which exploded into the order that we now know as the cosmos. That's a faith story, and atheists have faith who believe that story. So again, faith is crucial. Everyone has faith. There is no such thing as a faithless person. Some people are simply trusting in themselves. I know... My reason is correct. The way I live is the path that I must go. You know, I'm the captain of my own fate. I'm the master of my own soul. I plot my own course. I trailblaze through history. I must express my innermost passions and desires. That's faith in yourself. Everybody has faith, so let's not be mistaken. Christians have faith in Christ. Thus, Christian... We are called Christians by uh, having trust in belief, in reliance upon Jesus' person and work. He's at the center and at the foundation of our faith. Now, when we talk about the Jude 1-3 aspect of faith, we're talking about the faith revealed in the 66 books of the Bible. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. Now, Christians only know about the details of Christianity, what it's all about, how it works, uh, what we are to do and not do through these 66 books of Scripture called Revelation. Okay? God has revealed himself both in nature and in special revelation called Scripture. Christians only know the specifics of the Christian faith through the Scriptures, which is why specifically in this church, we rely heavily on the Bible. The songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the sermons we preach, the discipleship endeavors, all are rooted in and resting upon Scripture with Jesus and the good news about Him at the center. Otherwise, we're just practicing what? Our own ideas, our own ingenuity, our own cleverness? No, the Scriptures alone guide our faith and our practice. More about that in a moment. So what what I want to cast kind of hope for into this new year, if you're going to call Eternal City Church your home, maybe for a season, maybe for a year you want to check it out, uh, we're going to go, in a sense, back to basics. Fundamentals. And I don't mean fundamentalism. I don't mean to you know trigger any kind of negative Uh, remembrances of the past for some of you. Fundamentals as in what is at the foundation of our faith. What are those things that if we, if we kind of take away, we don't have the faith anymore. Often we know the fundamentals or the basics or the foundation in our heads. And since we know it, we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I got that. That's old. Give me something new. Meanwhile, often we don't practice the fundamentals and so our Christian life is wavering. We're like a leaf in the fall being tossed around by the wind, a dried leaf, and we're over here, and then we're over here, and then we're over here. Or, or as James would say, we're like waves of the sea being tossed back and forth, not solid, not grounded. Why? Because are we even practicing the basics of our faith? Do you even know what the basics are? And, and if you don't, that's okay. That's why we're going to do this message right now. Okay? So again, casting a vision or casting a hope for 2023, we want to kind of go back to basics or back to the fundamentals, or maybe let's talk about practicing Christianity. Practicing Christianity. Okay? For many of us, faith is simply intellectual, and it doesn't add up to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, clicking on Netflix, clicking on Hulu, clicking on Amazon Prime, spending your money, eating lunch with a friend, purchases. It's like Christianity has to do with a few hours on Sunday, and then the rest of the week is mine, you know? I do what I want. And that's a very weak version of Christianity, if Christianity at all. The Bible speaks of a very robust, thick, rich faith that permeates every moment of every day, that's real Christianity. So lunch, breakfast, dinner, snacks, brewing coffee, none of it is divided from Christianity. Whatever movies you watch, whatever shows you like, whatever books you read, the conversations you have, the YouTube shorts you like to flip through, all of it has to do with Christianity, all of it. Nothing in your life, if you're a Christian, is divorced from your faith or should I say from the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And so let's talk about this tonight, okay? Now, I, I want to introduce, oh man, I'm already losing time. And we haven't even gotten to the introduction. This is terrible. This is why I consistently go over time every time. Okay. First, I want to talk about some assumptions first, before we actually jump into the eight spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. Pete's like, oh no, eight. That's not good. Eugene concurs. Okay. So everything we need for life and godliness, if you're in Christ, if you belong to him, is yours. Did you know that? So that's assumption number one. Here it is. It's its 1st Peter 1, 3 to 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and and godliness. Now think about that. Life, that's everything. Godliness is godlikeness. In other words, you were created in the image of God to reflect Him, to glorify Him, and to image Him to the rest of creation, both seen and unseen. In other words, the angelic demonic world is supposed to look at you and see Christ, and other conscious creatures, human beings, are able to look at you and see Christ. And I would argue even your cats and dogs should be able to look at you and see a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of love for his creation. Right? Because did you know the Proverbs even speaks about one who loves his animals and cares for his animals? The, the Bible's not silent on creation care and animal care. Okay? So all things, look, all things that pertain to what? Life and living a life that reflects God. Godliness through what? Through, what does it come through? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That is Jesus. That is the Father. That is the Spirit. They, as a trinity, as a triunity, call us into their own essence, into their own glory, into their own divine nature. Where do you get that from? Right here. Partakers of the divine nature. They call us to themselves, and we participate in the very life of God, and we are changed and transformed as we grow. We're called to glory, excellence, by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises. Now, that's what I kind of want to talk about tonight, is the very great and precious promises. This is where we find uh, the, the, the rootedness of the word. The word contains the promises of God. The word contains these precious and very great promises, the chief being that if we have faith in Christ, we will be saved from the penalty of our sins and from punishment forever. So that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Think about that. You take in, you partake in Right, if you had ham or turkey or smoked pork or salmon for, for, for New Year's or, or Christmas, you partook of that. We are partaking of the divine nature. I think that means the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of your very body. Cause Paul says, Did you not know that your temple or I'm sorry, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? Therefore you should glorify God with your body. Having escaped, so Christians escape something, what? The corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Christians have a new heart, and from that new heart flows new desires. Christians have a new heart that affects their thinking. From that thinking, they see the world differently. It's even described as, once I was blind, but now I can see. It's described as, once I couldn't hear, but now my ears are open, and I'm no longer deaf. Deaf. It's that once the invisible realities that surround us were once invisible to us, but now we can see them and we have greater sight, sharper focus, true and eternal vision, if you will, is the Christians. Why? Because the sinful desires are being squashed and extinguished and new desires for godliness, glory, right living, blessing others, are are replacing these sinful desires. And oh, I wish they would just go away the moment that I became a Christian, don't you? Don't you wish the sinful desires would just go and you wouldn't even have temptation to wrestle with? But the Christian life is one of constant wrestling, constant fighting with your sin, but real and true and constant transformation. Okay, how do we know God? Okay. How do we know God? Because God is transcendent. He is not material. He's not like man. He is unapproachable in glory and holiness. Holiness means otherness. He's completely other in his being, in his essence, in his nature. He is pure existence from which everything else that exists flows from and is sustained by. So how do we know this God? Well, Hebrews actually tells us. Now, keep in mind, We only have Hebrews because we have the scriptures, okay? I'm going to keep referring back to that theme of the scriptures or the revelation of God gives us insight into who God is. This is why the Bible is so foundational to our faith. The writer of Hebrews, that's actually not one fourteen; It should be 1 1 to 4. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The fathers, um, those who were previous in the Jewish faith, before the Holy Spirit comes, before the Gentiles or uh, the non-Jewish ethnicities were added to the church. Back then, we're in a new covenant now, but back then in the old covenant, God spoke to the fathers, the leaders of the Jewish faith, uh, by the prophets and to the prophets and by direct revelation to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses and others. But in these last days, the dawning of the new covenant, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, marked a new time span, the last days, we're in them now. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus receives everything in existence through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, he created the angels, he created and sustains the angels. He is much higher than them. Okay? And, and often we're tempted to go after lesser, powerful, lesser, glorious idols. We're, at, we're, we're tempted to worship non-God all the time. And so here the writer of Hebrews is saying, like, look, don't worry about angels. He's way superior to them. Without him, they don't exist. Okay? He created them. He sustains them. Don't pray to angels. Don't worship angels. Worship God and Jesus. So here this is saying, he has spoken to us by his son, verse 2, And so how do we know about God? Because Jesus reveals the Father to us. Jesus reveals God. And we'll get into that a little more in a second. Okay, so assumption number one was that we have all things we need as Christians pertaining to life and godliness. Keep that in mind. You have everything you need. The Holy Spirit is actually what that's saying. Number two, we know about God through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He didn't say, I am the Father, you're looking at him. No, he said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one, we are united. I have come to reveal him to you. Okay, number three. You know, this one, I want you to hear. The church is one of the means of grace by which the spiritual disciplines or practices should be tethered to and that flow from. Often we make this mistake in the Christian life. We feel like, hey, it's me, it's Jesus, it's God, it's the Holy Spirit and my Bible, and I got it. Meanwhile, the scripture knows nothing of that. The the scripture knows nothing of a Christian not tied to and members of a local church, okay? Everything that God does, he does through and in the church. So contrary to popular American opinion, if you're not connected to a church and you're not in the life of a church, your Christianity is even suspect biblically. You can imagine you're a Christian, You can say to yourself, you're a Christian, but if you're not accountable to others, if you're not worshiping corporately, if you're not under the preaching of the word, if you're not uh, doing the practices, which we're going to get into the eight of them in a minute, how do you even know you're a Christian? How do you know you don't have the faith that James says is no faith at all? Dead faith that can't save, faith that demons even have. Did you know that demons have faith in God? That's what James says. He says, even the demons believe and they tremble. They're fearful of the God of glory. So we want to make sure we don't have demon faith. We want to make sure that we have the real, authentic, genuine article. How do we know that? Are we in a local church tied to other believers who can confirm our profession of faith? And if not, friends, you're on dangerous, shaky ground, okay? I love you, and so I'll warn you that way. And and listen, you don't have to be a part of this church go to another biblical church that preaches the gospel and is tied to the word. Okay. You must be a part of a church. I'm not saying you have to be part of this church. That would be cult-like this church and this church only. Otherwise you're in trouble. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. Connected to a biblical gospel preaching Bible tethered to Jesus church. Okay. All right. Now let's get into the eight. I only have 30 minutes and this is going to be great. All right, here we go. I'm going to fly. Now, D.A. Carson is a, a New Testament scholar, Bible scholar, who I highly uh, respect. And, and here, we're going to talk about spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. Here's what D.A. Carson says in a uh, Thamilios article. It's a, it's a theology journal. He says, what is universally presupposed by the expression of spiritual disciplines is such disciplines are intended to increase our spirituality. What do we do the the spiritual practices for? What do we do spiritual disciplines for? They're intended to increase our spirituality. From a Christian, I add biblical perspective, however, it is simply not possible to increase one's spirituality without possessing the Holy Spirit and submitting to his transforming instruction and power. Techniques are never neutral. So when we talk about spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines, we're talking about techniques or practices, things you do, actions. And Carson's saying none of them are neutral. They are invariably loaded with theological presuppositions And they're often unrecognized okay here's what carson's a scholar so he's going to talk like a scholar all right here's what he's saying if we're not careful about which disciplines we are doing or practicing what spiritual practices are we involved in if we're not carefully examining them with the scriptures we could be doing something spiritual but we could be doing very dark spiritual things that's very possible Listen, the ancient world and much of the developing world is full of dark spiritual practices. Much dark spirituality is out there, and it is calling calling, calling. Uh, A friend of mine has a church. His name is uh, Ricky Love. He has a church right in the middle of Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. You drive through a bunch of woods, you drive through a bunch of beautiful nature, and all of a sudden, boom, this little town pops out of nowhere. And as you go through the main drag of the town, you see just new age spiritual invitations in the storefronts. You know, uh, you have, you have astronomy over here, or astrology, rather you have uh, tarot cards over here. You have mystical crystals and you have all these spiritual invitations everywhere in this little town in West Virginia. And then boom, right in the middle of all that mess, you have, uh, a church. I love it. Inviting real spiritual life, like come here to the light out of all this darkness that is spiritual come engage the light. I love it. It's called Wellspring Church. Isn't that great? And so again, D.A. Carson is warning us, look, a lot of spiritual practices are preloaded with presuppositions. In other words, you're supposing something about this. Okay, So a lot of practices that Christians do might not actually be Christian. So we need to be careful. We need to tie our practices to the scriptures. Now, let me now say this, okay? And again, we haven't even gotten to the eight, so I'm still in the introduction. Don't worry, Tom, it's okay. We can practice spiritual disciplines or practice the faith, but if we don't have Christ, if we miss Jesus, friends, we've missed it all. Jesus said in John 5 to some very religious people, Scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law. He says, Look, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. If you will but practice the prescriptions of the scriptures, you know, your doctor prescribes you take two of these, you know, for two weeks and then come back and see me. It's a prescription. The Bible has a lot of commands. And Jesus says to those who were very good at practicing the commands, "You, John 5, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then he says this, yet these are the very scriptures that speak of me. You can practice all kinds of biblical exhortations, commands, and miss Christ, and you've missed the whole thing. And so we're not going to do that tonight either. In fact, here's what Peter says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was the righteous. We are the unrighteous. For what? That he might bring us to God. How do we get to God? Jesus suffered on the cross. He the righteous for, as a substitute, the unrighteous, us, So that we might, through Jesus, life, death, burial, resurrection, come to God, be connected to him. As Peter said in our earlier text, partake of the divine nature, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Okay, so all that as introduction. We must come to God through Jesus Christ, not spiritual disciplines. Does everyone understand what I'm trying to say to you? Okay, we come to God through Jesus Christ, not through our spiritual practices. You can do the spiritual practices minus Jesus, and you don't have God, and you're not increasing in your spirituality. Do I need to say it again another way? No, I don't. I don't think so. Now, does that mean we shouldn't practice spiritual disciplines, or we shouldn't practice the faith? No, it does not. But I had to get that out of the way first. Okay? So what is a definition of spiritual discipline, spiritual practice? Here's my definition. A means that God uses to mature and grow the Christian. A means. It's not an end in itself. It does something. What does it do? It grows, changes, transforms the Christian and you experience God's tangible presence and empowerment for mission. The mission's always the same. It's go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. All to the glory of God, the Christian's joy, and the good of others. I know that's a long definition, but it is what it is. Here's what D.A. Carson would say. He's, he's a little more succinct. Spiritual discipline is that which increases our spirituality. But remember, it cannot be divorced from Christ. Our spirituality, even in the word itself, spirituality implies the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And without Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Without Christ, you don't get to God. All right, here's D.A. Carson again, and then we'll put aside Carson for the night. He says, it is not helpful, not helpful to list assorted Christian responsibilities and label them as spiritual disciplines. Okay, I agree with what he's saying here. He's saying we should not take all the commands of Scripture and just call them all spiritual disciplines. Okay, and then he has this funny little example. He says, if out of Christian kindness, which we are commanded to be kind, love is patient, love is... Okay, so you're supposed to be kind. He says, if out of Christian kindness, you give a back rub to an old lady with a stiff neck and a sore shoulder then that back-rubbing becomes a spiritual discipline. It's not what we're talking about. Okay? So not all the commands of Scripture equal spiritual disciplines. Okay. For a Christian with any sense of the regulative function of Scripture, again, I'm quoting Carson, because I don't often say regulative principle or function. Okay? Here's what he means by that. The regulative principle of Scripture or the regulative function of Scripture is that Scripture should guide everything the Christian does. And then that splinters into hard regulative, soft regulative, and and we could go on that for, for weeks, but we don't need to do that. So he's saying that, I'll read it again. For Christians with any sense of Scripture guiding practice, nothing surely can be deemed a spiritual discipline if it is not so much as mentioned in the New Testament. So Christians should find their spiritual disciplines tethered to coming out of the New Testament. If everything in the Bible commands becomes a spiritual discipline to us, then in a sense, nothing is a spiritual discipline. All right. Number one, here we're going into the eight now. Number one, corporate worship. What are we doing right now? Corporate worship. Okay, we we come together for fellowship, we come together for prayer, we come together to experience the word, we come together to to take communion, we come together to pray corporately, together. Corporate worship. Where's that in the Bible? Many places. Here's a few. Acts 2, 46 to 47. This is at the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is right after the preaching of the first sermon uh, in the New Covenant. After the three thousand believe upon Peter's preaching, and, he, and, and Luke, who wrote Acts, gives us this description of what was happening with that very first church in those very first months—the birth of the church. This is this is at its inception. It's this very early in redemptive history, and day by day, attending the temple together, because there were no church buildings at the time. What they knew was temple and synagogue. Breaking bread in their homes, that probably means communion meals and fellowship, eating together. Like when Tom and I go to Mo's, we're breaking bread together, we're breaking burritos together, right? They're they're receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now look, from chapter 2 to chapter 20, we get a little bit further in redemptive history. Now look, Paul, speaking, says on the, to, the, to the church at, at Ephesus here, he's speaking. On the first day of the week, what day is that? Sunday. So now now we have clear, by Acts 20, there's clarity that the church is meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why would the church meet on Sunday? It's resurrection day, baby. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. You know, Sabbath used to be Friday night into Saturday night, 6 to 6 p.m. So why all of a sudden is this massive change in the meeting time? Well, because Jesus rose. In fact, that's one of the apologetics for the truthfulness of Christianity. Why would there be centuries of worship from Friday into Saturday and all of a sudden, post-Jesus, now the church is worshiping, on Sunday? Because he rose. It's victory day. We worship on resurrection day, every Sunday. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, notice the gathering together, corporate, break bread probably means communion, Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, this is one of my favorite texts because it gives me a little bit of permission to go along. You remember the story, right? Uh, Paul is speaking to such a degree that there's a fellow named Eutychus. Let me finish, Pete. Let me finish. There's a fellow regulative principle, baby, right here. Listen, I tie everything I do to Scripture. Come on, man. (laughs) So Eutychus, this Greek fellow is sitting in the window and Paul prolongs his speech, meaning like hours of sermon and Eutychus starts falling asleep. You remember the story? Literally, the guy falls out of the third story window because Paul kept preaching. I have a book called Saving Eutychus. It's a book about preaching how not to make people fall asleep like when you're preaching. And the the image has a guy falling out of a window like that. It's awesome. It's one of my favorite book covers. So Eutychus hits the ground and he dies. You just read it. It's in Acts 20. He dies. And Paul stops preaching. He's like, I'll hold that point. And he goes down. He lifts the guy up. And he's like, his life is still in him. Brings him back up. He's resurrected. And Paul keeps preaching. He's like, back to my former point. And he keeps going literally until the next day. And so, hey, 45 minutes. Come on, guys. If I go a little over, is it that big a deal? No one's died yet. All right. So so look, my point in this text is they're gathered together when on the first day of the week, again, redemptive history from Acts 2 to Acts 20, something is happening. The church is beginning to gather on the Lord's day and they are hearing preaching They got the apostle Paul preaching. Like the guest preacher was slamming that day. He was killing them. That was whack. I know, but I had to, I'm sorry. You'll get that tomorrow. Some of you will get that tomorrow. Okay. First Corinthians 6, 2. Now this is further in redemptive history. Look on the first day of the week. When is that? Sunday. Each of you, he's talking to the church at Corinth, each of you should put something aside, store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. Now, this is actually not a text about a weekly offering. This is actually a text about collecting money from all the Gentile churches for uh, relief for the church at Jerusalem. That's what this is about. And my point in bringing it up is not to say uh, giving is a spiritual discipline, though that is commanded in the Scripture. Rather, it's to show that on the first day of the week, the church was gathering. And so Paul could write something like, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside. And no one's scratching their head going, what does that mean? Because the church met on Sunday, corporately. So what do we do? Friends, we meet on Sunday. What do we do? We sing, we pray, we, we get into the Word. We fellowship, we take communion, we worship the risen Savior. Okay, so number one, what is a spiritual discipline? Corporate worship. Now, why did I put that as one? Friends, you cannot neglect corporate worship. Don't, don't think to yourself, I can be a Christian and just come to church when I want. You know, church is optional. It's not optional. We'll get to another one in, in a bit that, that proves with very much clarity that it's not optional. But this is a practice for you to grow, change, transform, or increase in your spirituality. You neglect corporate worship, you are stunting your own growth, period. It's very important for you to worship weekly with your church. Okay, number two, singing biblical gospel songs during corporate worship. Where would we see that in the Bible? Well, here's one place. The Psalms is loaded with texts about singing, okay? It's, it's the Psalm book of the Bible, okay? But I, I just wanted to show you a New Testament one. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, okay? That means the gospel, the word about Christ dwell in you richly. And then look how Paul informs the church at Colossae. Teaching and admonishing one another, one another corporate, one another, in what? Wisdom, singing, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So notice this. Christ is dwelling in your heart. The gospel is is in there. it's, It's living inside of you. And we teach and admonish one another with wisdom. How? In our singing. In our singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to who? to God. Friends, did you know that when you sing in corporate worship, you are actually informing, instructing, and encouraging others by your singing? So not only are we singing to God for his glory, but we are actually encouraging one another. That's what the text literally says. Teaching and admonishing one another. How? Singing. Because we're to be singing songs rooted in the scripture, with the gospel at the heart. And as we sing together corporately, I can hear you sing, you hear me sing, and we are confirming and affirming the truths as we sing them to God. Get it? Okay. Now we we could spend a series on worship, but we just don't have time. So let's move to number three. Number three, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Okay. This is what are called the sacraments. There are two sacraments in the Protestant church. We are not Catholics. We are not Greek Orthodox. We're not even Lutherans or Methodists or Baptists. We're Eternal City Church. But Protestants, those who would hold to the five solas, God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, how do we know those are, are the four essentials? Because Scripture alone tells us these things. We hold to the five onlys or solas of the Reformation. And so we sing and we practice the Lord's Supper and baptism. So here's Paul talking to the Corinthian church and he says, I received from the Lord, Jesus, what I also delivered to you. Paul saying to the church at Corinth, look, what I got from Jesus, I just gave it directly to you. I didn't change it. I didn't alter it. And here's what it is that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, this is the upper room, the last supper we call it. On the, last, uh, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. When? As often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim. To proclaim is to say something. You proclaim what? What do we say? The Lord's death until he comes. Friends, when we take communion every week, and we do take it every week because we believe it's a practice of the faith, a means of sustaining grace, the reason we do that is because we proclaim Jesus' death as the center of our faith, and we do that corporately every single week. This is why I do, I do not think it's biblical to like take communion by yourself at home. It's just me, my Bible, and my communion. It's me and Jesus. No. It's a corporate practice. We do it together. We are communing with God together. Communion. Okay? So... Though there are situations and circumstances, you're stuck in the house, you're a shut and okay, a pastor and maybe a few others can come over and we could do communion together. But it's not a solo endeavor. It's when you come together, you practice the Lord's supper and we together proclaim Jesus died for us and for me. Matthew 28, baptism, okay? This is the great commission. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. What's the mission every time? Discipleship, all nations. That's the mission. Now, the way that looks and plays out is very different and nuanced, but what's the mission? Discipleship. There is no other mission, which is why it's the first of our core commitments. Make disciples who make disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples of who? All ethnos, ethnicities, everybody. All nations, all people, go make them disciples. What does the disciple look like? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now they are identified by the Trinity. Teaching them, what? To observe all that I have commanded. And then he says, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll be with you by my Spirit. And so, what is the church to do? They make disciples, how? Baptizing, teaching to observe all that Jesus commanded. Okay, and so the two sacraments or ordinances of the church that are biblically warranted are, say it, communion and baptism. That's it. And they're both showing the gospel. Okay? When you go under the water, yes, I am baptistic in my view of baptism. When you go under the water, immersion, the word literally means to dip, to dunk, to go under. And you come back up according to Romans chapter six, you are displaying the death and union with Jesus in his death and you come up and you're uh, showing the resurrection, you're being united with him in his death and resurrection, okay? So baptism and the Lord's supper. Number four, confession and repentance. I don't like this one, this is a little personal. Yes it is, but It is not without scriptural warrant. Did you know that when you're practicing spirituality, spiritual disciplines, the Bible says you should confess your sins to who? To the pastor? To a priest? James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another. That makes me uncomfortable. A lot of the Bible makes me uncomfortable. 99% of it makes me uncomfortable. And that's why we need to change. That's why we need to be transformed. That's why we need to do things differently. We're used to doing what makes us comfortable, I love soft blankets, soft pillows, and soft mattresses. Okay. This is not sleep number Christianity. It is not. Okay. So confess your sins to one another. And what? Pray for one another. Okay? So prayer is coming. That's next. Pray for one another. What? That you may be healed. Now, just before this, James admonishes, Is anyone sick among you? Let them call on the elders of the church and anoint them with oil, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And so that that is there, okay? And we have prayed for, for people who are sick. And if God chooses to heal them through that means, fantastic. And so I, I said it, if any of you needs prayer for something, you can ask the elders of the church, and we'd be happy to pray for you. And if you're sick, we'd be happy to anoint you with oil and give you to God, and perhaps He will heal you. We're, we're happy to do that. Um, I have a story of personal healing in that way. If you want to hear it, talk to me later, okay? I've experienced the James 5 myself. The prayer of a righteous per- person is has great power as it is working. Galatians 6.1, another one. Remember, we're talking about confession and repentance. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, okay? Transgression means sin. Transgression means violation of the law. If you're caught in it, now what I don't think this means is like you're watching something you shouldn't on your phone and then your Christian brother or sister or husband and wife comes behind you and is like, what are you looking at? You're caught. I don't think it means that. No, that's not good. Okay. What I think it means is more like when you're walking through the woods and one of those claw bear traps goes and it's got you and you're bleeding and you're stuck and you can't get out because that trap is so old and rusty. You can't pry it apart. You need others to come help and they have to pry that thing off of you. Otherwise you're stuck. That's what I think it means caught. You're stuck and you can't get out without the help of others. This is what the church is for, in part. Now, if we don't know about your caughtness, most of the times it's obvious, we can see it, but you have to confess it and let us know that you're caught in it for us to help pry it off of you. What does that demand? Confession. Repentance always means turning away from And you're always turning away from something to something. It's not neutrally just turning away. You're turning away from the sin and darkness, and you're turning to God, Christ, forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, transformation, power. Turning from to. From evil, from darkness, from Satan, from death, and you're turning to light, life, forgiveness, grace, and welcome, okay? Confession and repentance. Number five with five minutes left. Prayer, corporate and private. Prayer, corporate and private. Matthew 6, 5a and 6. This is uh, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of Christian living. It's not a prescription for how to become a Christian. It's assuming you already are a Christian and this is the way you should live. And so, as a Christian, when you pray, what's the assumption? Christians pray. When you pray, of course, you're a Christian. You're going to pray. What is prayer? Talking to God. That's it. And then Jesus taught us how to pray. He said, our father in heaven, come on, you've been to AA and NA meetings. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I guess I'm the only one that's been there. All right. I just told him myself and confessed my sins there. No, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. That word hypocrite in the ancient language means wearing a mask, pretending you're someone you're not. In other words, your Facebook profile. Gotcha. Don't be like the hypocrites. But when you pray, here's how not to be a hypocrite when praying privately. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now this is in contrast to in Jesus' day, people wanted to pray loudly and on street corners so they would get glory and honor. Now you pray loudly on the street corners in any major city in the United States, they'll think you're crazy and probably label you a bigot and a hater. Oh, he's one of them. But not in Jesus' culture. Glory, honor, praise came from praying loudly on the street. Okay, and so it's not as much a temptation for us as it was for them. For us, it's actually a temptation to never let our prayer be public, isn't it? It's actually the opposite temptation. It's like we go into a restaurant, we're like, no one's looking. Jesus, thank you for this food. We thank you for providing. I like that shirt, you know. And and, and it's like we're not even praying. So again, I think it's the opposite temptation for us as it was in Jesus' day. We're, 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 we're almost scared to let people know we're Christians. Okay? But here he's saying, don't be like a hypocrite, don't do it for show, in other words. Okay? Pray and God hears you. When you pray, God hears you. Uh, and here's another aspect of prayer that, that we don't often practice, I think, but it's very important. Blessed is the man who walks, this is Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Contrast, but his delight, her delight, is in the law or instruction of the Lord. What is that? It's the Bible. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, meditation is one of those spiritual practices that across religious lines, people do. Okay. And this is one of those things that D.A. Carson said, be careful when you think about meditation and practice meditation, because the Eastern religions would have you empty your mind of anything and try to focus on the nothingness. That is not what is being said here. Notice the content you're supposed to focus on and mull over, chew on. What? The law of the Lord. This is not an emptying of the mind. It's a what? Filling of the mind. Okay meditation is neutral. What you're meditating on is crucial. Don't meditate on the wrong things. We can meditate on sinful fantasies, right? What is meditation? It's just thinking about it over and over, mulling it over and over. And we can be sinfully meditating. No. What do we meditate on? The law or instruction of the Lord. You're thinking about scripture. You're, mulling, you're praying through it. God, what does this mean? Help me to apply this. Here, I'll give you one example how I apply this. Um, I generally re- will read one chapter a day of the Bible. This is just for personal devotions, not study. And, and I'm praying through, thinking through what I'm reading. How does this apply to me? God, make this apply to me. I want to be this. And, and so it's a meditative prayer reading. Okay, and it's prayer. All right, we gotta keep going. Number six, scriptural medi- um, uh, memorization memorizing scripture. In other words, committing it to memory. You know your favorite song's lyrics, right? Off by heart. It comes on, you could just start singing it. You know how to memorize. How do you memorize your favorite song? Over and over and over again. Same thing with scripture. You you, you write it, you read it, you say it out loud repeatedly until it gets in you. And you've memorized it. I have stored up your, Psalm 11. I have stored up your word in my heart. What does that mean? Memorized. It's inside of the person. It just comes out. It's inside. That I might not sin against you. Notice the claim here is that memorizing scripture will keep you from sinning against God. That's pretty serious. And so if you're a person who can't escape the grasp of sin, perhaps you need to start practicing this memorizing Scripture. Colossians 3.16, we've already been here. Let the Word of Christ dwell where? In you. In you. Now, one way to memorize Scripture is to sing it, which is, yes, I understand, a, a an argument for singing the Psalms. We should do that. And we do sing some of the Psalms, and I hope that we will sing more of them. Okay? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. All right, number seven. One more after this. Sharing the gospel or witnessing. Okay, this means sharing your faith, helping people know not only are you a Christian, but God wants you to be a Christian too. Not only am I a Christian, but God has claim on you, and He wants you to be a Christian. That's what I mean by witnessing. Okay, here's a couple texts. Romans 1:16. Paul says, Look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. I am a Christian, I don't care what you think, in a good way, not in an arrogant way, not you're nothing to me, you're dirt to me, Christian, no, (laughs) no, that's not what I'm talking about, it's, you might think less of me because, because I'm a Christian, but you know what, God's opinion far outweighs your opinion, did you know that the Old Testament word for glory literally means weight, weightiness? And so, when you give other people, like lesser creation, more weight in their opinions than God, what are you doing? You're glorifying human beings. You're giving them the weight that God should have. And so, when we have, this is called fear of man, by the way, the, the, the Proverbs are full of admonitions that the, fear of, the man, fear of man is a snare and a trap. It's basically giving human beings more weight than they deserve. God's opinion, God's word, God's instruction should have the weightiest place in your life, not other people. And so if that's true, then you won't be ashamed of this good news because it's good and you actually believe it. And if someone doesn't think it's good news, you trust God's word over what their opinion is because their opinion is weightless. It's dust on your bookshelf. And what do you do with dust? (laughs) It's gone. And did you know that Isaiah literally says that the nations to God are dust on the scales? What does dust weigh? Nothing. Doesn't even tip the scales. Because God is so weighty, so glorious, so great. Oh God, that you would make us see you as that glorious so that people's opinions don't matter. All right. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, everyone, anyone and everyone who believes it is the power of God for their salvation to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, because Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Jews. He came in fulfillment of that promise. And now, believe it or not, Jesus is also the Messiah of the non-Jews, the Gentiles as well. In Acts 1.8, this is Jesus about to ascend, and he says, you will receive power When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Because at this point in redemptive history, Acts chapter 2 has not happened yet. Acts chapter 2 marks the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, what will be the mark of having the Holy Spirit? Do you bark like a dog? Do you roll around on the floor? Do you fall backwards? Do you start uttering in strange languages? No. You will be my witnesses. Isn't that interesting? When you have the Holy Spirit, you witness. What do you witness? What you've seen and heard. You think about a court hearing, you're called up as a witness. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to, in truth, tell what you've seen and heard and experienced. There it is. I'm a Christian. Jesus saved me. This word is powerful. Look at my life. I'm being changed and transformed. I believe this. I know a lot of other people believe this. They're struggling forward too. You're witnessing. You can be included as well. And you share the good news. You're being a witness to what you've seen and heard. Where? In Jerusalem, that's ground zero for these people. Judea is the outer region. Samaria is even further out. And then to the ends of the earth. Okay, according to this text, we are the ends of the earth. The gospel has reached Pittsburgh. Praise God. Okay? And so now we see this as Jerusalem. Where's our Judea? Where's our Samaria? Where's our end of the earth? We are to witness. Okay, number eight fellowship. Fellowship is this idea that you are to be with and in relationship with other Christians. Okay. That is not an option. You say, I don't like Christians. If you're a Christian, that is not a good thing. Okay. <laughs> Here's why. Now, listen, I, 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 all people can be jerks, Christian or not. Hey, personalities clash. When you get a bunch of different people in one room, there's going to be clashes. But you know what? You're called to love everybody. Now, it doesn't mean that you like their way of being in the world. It doesn't mean that. It means you do sacrificial acts of good for them. For God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave what? His only son. Okay. So we are to be with other Christians. Now, this is also an argument for corporate worship, but it's also an argument for what we would call fellowship, being with other Christians. Okay. Let us consider, the writer of Hebrews says, how to stir one another up to what? Love and good works. Okay. Now I used to live a riotous lifestyle and I had some friends who you could definitely call them thugs and hooligans and vandals. And I was one too. And when we got together, we did not stir each other up to love and good deeds. Okay? We stirred each other up to destruction and chaos and stealing and breaking and breaking in and taking. That's what we did. We, we rout each other up. I'll bet you won't go punch him in the face. All right, watch this. See, this is the opposite of that. This is Christians come together to stir each other up for what? Loving one another and doing good. We're the opposite of a gang who goes around and takes what is from others and does violence. We do the opposite. We go around and we love people and we do good to them. Rather than take from them, we give to them of what is ours. And so here we are to consider, that means think about, meditate on something. What? How to stir one another up. That means action. That means motivating. It means rousing. What? Other people to love and good deeds. Not neglecting to meet together. Notice the negative there. Not neglecting, what? Meeting together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So what's the contrast to not meeting together? Encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice the D is capitalized there. That's judgment day. Okay, so the motivation here is, look, Judgment Day is coming for every person, Christian or not. And we want to be those who on Judgment Day can say, I did not neglect the meeting together with your kids, of which I am one. My brothers and sisters, I was with. And I stirred them up to love and good deeds as they did me. Because on Judgment Day, we will be held accountable. Okay? So I know... That was eight, and I'm already 10 minutes over. So I know that we could take scripture and we could find many more. We could, okay? But these are eight that I believe if we would practice as a church, not only would we grow, but we would then invite others in to grow with us. I really believe that. And so here's, here's my encouragement, and then let's land the plane with the gospel. If you're feeling dry, discouraged, like you're not growing, like you're not going anywhere, like you're not only not growing, but you're shrinking. My question is, are you practicing any of these eight? Maybe you're practicing two of the eight, maybe three, maybe five. Friends, remember, we don't get to God through the disciplines. We get to God through Christ. But with Christ at the center, we do have some things we have to do. And they're all by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Peter said at the very beginning, we open this up. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, for what? To bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. We get to God through Christ, not spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. Once we have been brought to God through Christ, we do have to take some steps of action so that we might grow. In fact, Philippians 2.13 would say it like this, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will, that means choosing, and act, that's the doing, according to his good pleasure. Now that salvation there is not the salvation from the penalty of your sins, That's salvation in the sense of continuing salvation from the current sins that plague you, the sins that so easily entangle you. You need saved from your current sins, as do I. How? By doing these practices by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to do one of the practices right now. What is it? We're gonna take communion, okay? This is an act of worship, this is a means Of sustaining grace, not saving grace. We're saved through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ and our trusting in him. But this is a means of keeping us on the path. And so for you tonight, if you're not a Christian and you want to become one, you're like, man, I I don't know if I've ever come to Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. I don't know that I've ever trusted in him that I might be saved from my sins. I don't know that I've ever turned from sin to Christ. Friends, tonight's the night. Why wait any longer? You don't know what tonight holds or tomorrow. Get right with God now. Today is the day of salvation. And so maybe you can right now do business with God. Pray to him and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want your forgiveness. Please have mercy on me and save me. Forgive me of my sins. And you know what? Jesus will save you. The Philippian jailer said to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And you know what Paul's answer was? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so you can be saved tonight by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, by trusting him. And then as a Christian, you might take communion for the first time and experience with your taste buds, the symbol of the reality of Jesus body broken and blood shed. And as you take that with us, we are saying Jesus died for us and Jesus died for me.